1: After the Buddha's enlightenment, it said that he spent uh, seven weeks under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, um, under and around the Bodhi tree, just contemplating the realization and the understanding of his great awakening. And then he was wondering who he might be able to share these profound teachings with, And he thought of the five ascetics with whom he had been practicing the ascetic mortifications, disciplines, uh, for many years. And he thought uh, that their minds would be ripe to hear and understand these teachings. So he journeyed on foot from Bodh Gaya to Sonath, and said it took him um, about six how long did it take him? <laughs> six weeks, not six days. <laughs> uh, I have it all down here. <laughs> uh, so he, he walked uh, for six weeks from Bodhgaya to Sarnath, which is a small village across the river Ganges from the city of Benares, uh, sometimes known as Varanasi. And on the first, on the full moon, of June, uh, he gave his first discourse to these five ascetics. And it's the discourse in which he outlined uh, what Jill mentioned last night, uh, his teachings which is known of the middle way. That is the middle between the extremes of sense indulgence and self-mortification. And as part of this first discourse, which is called turning the wheel of the Dharma or setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. it was his first teaching after his enlightenment. And it's interesting, this wheel of the Dharma has now rolled over the last 2,600 years across Asia, across Europe, across the oceans to Barry, Massachusetts. (laughs) So it's quite an amazing happening. You know, the transmission of these teachings over thousands of years. And in this first discourse, uh, what's included is the structure or the uh, basic foundation of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are the foundational Buddhist teachings in all the Buddhist traditions. I mean, this is, this is what's basic and in common, uh, in all the traditions, in Theravada, in Mahayana, in Vajrayana. They will center in one way or another or elaborate these Four Noble Truths. So upon hearing the teaching, one of the five ascetics realized the first stage of awakening called stream enter, or in Pali, sotapana. So this one ascetic heard the teachings, and his mind opened to that level of realization. And then practicing over the next few days with the Buddha as their guide, some good karma there. Uh, uh, Sorry folks. (laughs) Uh, We're in the dark ages. (laughs) Uh, The remaining four (laughs) ascetics realized the fruit of stream, stream entry, stream winning. Then the Buddha gave the second discourse, which in Pali is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which means the discourse on the characteristics of non-self or no-self. So in his very second discourse, He's laying out the teachings for this central uh, understanding of the teachings, the understanding of non-self. So he gave the second discourse on the characteristics of non-self and all five ascetics became fully enlightened. So we're going to try for that tonight. So the teachings on non-self is really at the heart, uh, the heart of the teachings. It's really critical and central and essential, you know, in the Buddha's understanding of the path to awakening. But unlike the truths and the experience of impermanence or of dukkha, you know, which George talked about the other day and Jill both. Unlike the understandings of impermanence and dukkha, which are obvious and not easy, not not difficult to understand, even if we don't fully realize them yet, but we can easily grasp uh, their import. Whereas the teachings on non-self in many ways are counterintuitive they run counter to our common sense, everyday understanding of who we are. Because we live our lives and we've been taught and grow up with a very strong sense of there's a self here who's experiencing you know, life's experiences. And that's hardly questioned. Certainly there's not, nothing in our culture, or even particularly in Western philosophical traditions that even remotely refer to this idea or understanding of non-self. In fact, our very language, the languages that we use, most languages, reinforce the sense of I. I is the subject, you know, of, of our grammar in many ways. So we're continually reinforcing the notion that there is an I who is the subject of all experience. It's no wonder that when we hear non-self, what can that possibly mean? So the Buddha went on to explain it and to really show us how we can begin to open to this understanding for ourselves. Now I'm gonna be reading at different times some excerpts from this sutta. The sutta explaining the characteristics of non-self. When you listen to the words, try to listen to them as if it were the Buddha speaking directly to you, rather than as just Buddhist philosophy. Because if you're listening to it as Buddhist philosophy, Very easy for the mind to get in, you agree, you disagree. It's not that helpful, because it's all on the intellectual, conceptual level. If you listen to the words as if the Buddha is speaking to you, just as he was speaking to the five ascetics, you know, and you really let the words in, into your heart, and relate them to your experience, then they have transformative power. And maybe there will be (laughs) five or six or a hundred enlightened beings at the end. So in reading from the sutta, there's one word that I'm not going to translate from the Pali. And that is the word dukkha. And the four noble truths all revolve around this word, the first noble truth, is the truth of dukkha. The second noble truth is the cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is the end of dukkha. The fourth noble truth is the path leading to the end of dukkha. So it seems pretty important that we have a clear understanding of what this word means. The problem is that in English, there is no one single word that captures the full range of what's meant by this Pali term. As many of you probably know, most commonly it's translated as suffering. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end. And in many situations, this translation is appropriate. We're all familiar with the pain and the suffering that can occur and does occur in our minds and bodies during our lives. So this is not not some esoteric experience. We all experience suffering of different kinds. So one of the meanings of dukkha is suffering. And that's fairly easy to understand. But how do we reconcile the Buddha's far-reaching statement that all conditioned things, which means everything that arises in our experience, in the mind, in the body, in the world, it's all part of the conditioned flow of experience, how do we reconcile his statement that all conditioned things are dukkha, with our experience of many things in life being pleasurable. So how does, how does that fit together? If, if we take Dukkha just to mean suffering, then it doesn't really make sense. Because as we know, there are much of our lives, there may not be any particular suffering. We may be enjoying beautiful things, happy states, Here, words other than suffering may more fully convey what Dukkha means. And it's important to understand this because then we can enter into uh, this discourse and be receiving the full import of what the Buddha is trying to say. So words like unreliable. Dukkha meaning unreliable, or insecure, or ultimately unsatisfying. These terms more completely encompass what is meant by the term dukkha. So when the Buddha says all conditioned things are dukkha, it's not that they're always suffering, but they are always unreliable. They are always incapable of giving lasting fulfillment and satisfaction precisely because they don't last. So in this understanding of dukkha, already we're beginning to relate to it more or relate it more to our life experience. No matter what's arising, it may be very pleasurable and it may be things that bring us a lot of happiness. So even in the enjoyment and even in the happiness, we can still understand the dukkha aspect of them as being unreliable, as being not capable of ultimately fulfilling us. So when you listen to the words, the Buddha's words, from the sutta, and you hear the term dukkha, keep in mind this more expansive meaning. It doesn't simply mean suffering, although that's one aspect of it. It also means things, all things are unreliable or ultimately unsatisfying and that this, uh, this can apply and does apply and we should investigate for ourselves to see if it really does apply in our lives, can apply to every aspect of our experience. It is this understanding of dukkha, the unreliability of phenomena, and sometimes painful. some, Some of the experiences are suffering, so that's included in it, but it's an understanding the expanded version that we can begin to see the connection between our experience and realization of dukkha and of anatta, or not-self. There's a very intimate connection between these two aspects. And it's really in understanding the relationship of dukkha to selflessness, of dukkha to anatta, that opens the doorway to freedom, to realization. So this is from the sutta, this is just uh, a few lines from it. So usually discourses, uh, they introduced with a, um, a little preface. On one occasion, the blessed one was living at Benares, Varanasi, in the deer park in Sarnath. And there he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Remember, these are the five ascetics. The second discourse. He said, bhikkhus. Venerable sir, they replied. The blessed one said this. (coughs) Just one little note on the term bhikkhu, which is often translated as monk or bhikkhuni nun, but In this context, bhikkhu also has a bigger meaning. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the great translator of our time, of the text, he commented that bhikkhu in its broadest sense means anyone who is walking on the path. So in that sense, we're all bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. We're all on the path, walking it. So when the Buddha says bhikkhus, he's really talking to us all. So you should hear it that way, bhikkhus. Form, and by form, what's meant the physical body, the physical material elements. This is what's included or what's designated by the term form. So you might think just most easily, you might think of it as the body, but it's really all physical elements. Because form is non-self, or body is not self. Were form self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine, let my form or my body be thus. Let my form or body not be thus. But because form is non-self, it leads to affliction. And it is not possible to determine, let my form be like this. Let my form be not like this. Okay, so I'm gonna unpack that a little bit. It's really very simple, but the language you know, may seem a little archaic. <clears throat> Here the Buddha is highlighting two aspects of the relationship between dukkha and non-self. First, he's saying that the elements of the body lead to affliction. So if we're really self, we, ge- we generally don't take those things that lead to affliction and suffering to be I or to be me. But the elements of the body do lead to affliction. And second, these elements, these physical elements, are ungovernable. They are ultimately not subject to our will. So he's saying... The body doesn't respond to our commands, let my body be like this, let it not be like this. It's not like that, the body is following its own natural laws. So in two ways, it leads to affliction and the elements are not governable, according to our will. That seem clear? Those are two pretty straightforward statements. So we need to investigate this for ourselves Again, not hearing it as Buddhist philosophy, but seeing, is this true? You know, in my own experience, is this true? And to see how these two aspects of leading to affliction and not being governable, ultimately, how these play out in our lives. So the question is, how do the physical elements lead to affliction? not hard to see, even if very often we don't like to acknowledge it. We can really see the afflictive nature of the elements, what we call the body, in some of the very ordinary activities of our daily life. There is the affliction of hunger and thirst. But we don't often recognize this, because for most of, them, for most of us these afflictions are easily remedied. Right? We're thirsty, we take a drink. We're hungry, we take some food. But it is precisely the dukkha of the elements that leads us to these remedies. Why do we take a drink? Because there's some kind of suffering of thirst. Why do we eat when we should? Because there's the affliction or the suffering of hunger. You know, for many of us, this suffering is easily remedied, but for millions and perhaps billions of people, these basic needs are not easily fulfilled and so the dukkha aspect of the elements in those situations becomes extremely obvious. Some time ago I read that over a billion people in the world don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. That's that's huge. Yeah. If every time we take a drink, that's opening us to disease. That's that's real affliction, that's suffering. Or one other thing that was part of that same article, it said that millions of women over the whole world often have to walk three or more miles a day to carry 25 pounds of water, just to get the water, to drink and to bathe and to wash. So we forget that, you know, and sometimes, Some years ago, I was at my family for Thanksgiving, and we just did a little round saying what we were grateful for. And one of the things that came to mind, I was, I was coming from the three-month retreat, uh, teaching, and the fact that water comes out of a tap, the fact that most of the time we can get hot water out of a tap. We don't even think about it, you know, because it's so much part, it's so ordinary. And yet, for many people, that's not available. And when it's not available, it becomes very clear that there is hunger and thirst, or real bodily afflictions, there's suffering involved in this. And because of that, you know, we're moved to different kinds of actions. We can see the afflictive nature of the material elements in you know, the very intense natural disasters that happen. The eruption of volcanoes, floods, hurricanes. These are physical elements. These are just the elements of nature. And yet, in those forms, they're tremendously destructive. You know, we've all seen the amount of suffering caused by the impact of those elements. We can experience the afflictive nature of the body in the simple necessity to move and change posture in order to relieve discomfort. At a certain point, regardless of what posture you're in, it will become painful. You're walking, feels great. Walking, moving the body. Walk for two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. Oh, it feels good! I'll just walk for days. No, we get the body gets tired. When it gets tired or sore or achy, we have to rest it. We have to sit or lie down. If you're sitting, oh, great. I'm sitting. I have a nice posture here. I'll just sit till I get enlightened. <laughs> I recommend trying it. <laughs> but what happens? After a certain point, sitting in one posture, the body gets stiff. It gets painful. We have to change the posture in order to relieve the suffering. Oh, well, that's okay. I'll just lie down. Lying down will be really comfortable. So I had this thought once. In, I was practicing in India, and I was so fed up with the suffering of the body you know, just from the the postures, I thought. So I got a big piece, like a, a foam, a thick foamy, you know, to, to sleep on, to lie down on. So it was this thick piece of foam. I lay down on my back, nothing crossed. My legs weren't crossed. My arms weren't pro- just great, supported by this nice soft foam rubber. It was comfortable for about maybe half an hour. <laughs> You know, 45 minutes, at a certain point, even in that position, nothing crossed, completely supported, it gets painful. Why? Because the nature of the material elements, there is an afflictive nature in the very elements themselves. It's not doing something wrong. This is the nature of the elements, of having a body. And it's not hard to see if we're paying attention. You know, there's a, there's a little catchphrase which would be very interesting for you to apply in your practice as a tool of investigation. And the catchphrase is, movement masks dukkha. So just, you know, at times, just out of interest, every time you move, see if you can pay attention to what's motivating the movement. Just to say, very often, it's not that it's always, sometimes we're moving out of a greed for something (laughs) that may not be associated in that moment with a physical discomfort, but largely, movement masks who we move in order to alleviate, to relieve a kind of stress in the body. So pay attention to that, because that will give you a very direct insight into what the Buddha is saying. Because, because form, the body, is non-self, it leads to affliction, right? Because it's just following its own laws. It's not, it's not that it's subject to our will. What's interesting is that because we're not paying attention in this way, as we alleviate the suffering, either by taking a drink or taking food or changing posture, we confuse how movement masks stukha with the belief that we're in control of it, you know, that's I'm in control of whether the body feels dukkha or not, you know. And we're not the very, it's, it's obscuring the nature of the elements themselves. But at some point or other, the ungovernable nature of these elements, even though we can make these various moves to mask the dukkha, at some point the nature of the elements, the afflictive nature, becomes obvious and unavoidable. Now probably we would all like to stay young and healthy with a vigorous active body that can accomplish everything we'd like it to do. But the body is not obliging us in this way, quite without our agreement the body ages, and it becomes ill, and it will eventually die. It's subject to all kinds of unwished-for ailments and diseases. This is the nature of the elements. Again, it's not that we've somehow made a mistake in life, we've taken a wrong turn And on this turn, the body ages. And it wouldn't have aged if I had made the right decision. No, it's unavoidable because it is the very nature of the elements. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out to us. And what's so amazing, really, is that when we look, it's completely obvious. And yet, for the most part in our lives, we don't look. We are distracting ourselves from this very basic truth. It's for this reason that the Buddha said, form of the body, the physical elements, is not self. If the body were self, we should be able to determine, let it be like this and not like this. But we can't determine that. Why? Because it is ungovernable according to our will. We can can influence, and the things we do certainly influence what goes on in the body, but ultimately, things are simply following the laws of nature, and the very laws of nature. And this is, uh, sometimes people don't like to acknowledge this, that the physical elements the nature of the elements do lead at times to affliction. So we, we just want to see that and acknowledge, yeah, this is this is how it is. This is the nature of the body. And so then we're not thrown when, when these afflictions happen to us. You realize, yeah, this is this is the Dharma. This is how things are. So what do we do? You know, as we begin to open to this understanding, what do we do in response to it? Now, how do we engage with the body, with the world, with our lives, knowing this? So the Buddha, again, he pointed out, given this nature of the body, that the material elements lead to affliction, he pointed out the way to be free in this. He gave some very specific instructions. He said, bhikkhus, that's all of us, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So what does abandon mean? You know, all of this is translation from the Pali into English, and sometimes the English words can have a connotation that are not a- exactly what's meant from the Pali term. So abandon here. Abandon what is not yours. It doesn't mean to ignore. It doesn't mean to deny. It doesn't mean to not take care of the body, or take care of the material world around us. Rather, the Buddha is saying these elements in their nature lead to affliction, don't cling to it. Don't cling to it as being I or mine. Don't cling to things staying a certain way because they won't. Everything is in a process of change and transformation. The whole world is in this process of change. And yet how much of our suffering in our lives on all kinds of levels happen because there's some situation that we want to stay. You meet the love of your life and are hopelessly or hopefully in love. And you want the person, yes, I I love you just the way you are and don't change. (laughs) Well, if anything is a setup for suffering, (laughs) that's going to be it. Buddha is saying, don't cling to any aspect of this process because things are going to change and not always change according to our liking. Sometimes it will, but sometimes it won't. And we don't necessarily have control of that.
0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H Insight Hour.